You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Amazon and the five largest U.S. publishing houses are free for now of antitrust litigation over claims they manipulated online book and ebook markets. But the case may not be over just yet. My guest is antitrust law expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Harry, tell us about these lawsuits. So, so let's just. Um, will you just explain what this, what this class action, what they it was about? Okay, this is a fun case, <laughs> as <laughs> all antitrust cases are. They are. So, um, first of all, it's a class action, which, as you know, is brought on behalf of a lot of people, and this is brought on behalf of buyers of ebooks against Amazon and five major book publishers. So that's presumably a lot of ebooks, a lot of money riding on this. Damages in these cases are not just what the consumers might have paid over what they should have paid, the overcharge, which is what they're alleging, but it's that trebled. So damages are three times that. So a lot of buyers, the the book publishers publish almost 90% of the books published in the United States. And of course, We've heard of Amazon. <laughs> An interesting little factoid, they sell more books than any other single retail outlet in history. In history. You know, I, I'm not sure that, how far back that goes, but they have tremendous power in this industry. Is it a monopoly? Well, that's a great question, and it's a question the Federal Trade Commission has been investigating They've been assigned the task, I guess you could say, of investigating Amazon for monopolizing conduct. It's not a violation of U.S. law just to be a monopoly. They have to do bad things to keep their monopoly or to have gotten it. And so they are under investigation. They've always been under a lot of fire. They're under fire here. They're under fire in Europe, in Asia, I mean, everywhere. And, you know, instinctively, we know they've got tremendous power over the book publishers they do some publishing of books, but they haven't really made a go of it. 
and they, their power is mainly as the the distributor, the retailer that has great power in the dist- chain of distribution. So very powerful, and you know the book publishers aren't not powerful. Without them, we don't have books. So these are parties on both sides with a lot of market power. So the problem in this case, the reason why the buyers are bringing is they allege that the five publishers and Amazon have conspired to fix the prices of ebooks roughly, I guess, from 2016, 2017 onward and raise the price above what it would be in a competitive market without this agreement. So how did they do it? And this is where, of course, it gets complicated because, you know, the plaintiffs have to prove that they actually agreed. So each of the publishers has an agreement with Amazon. They have these agreements individually with Amazon for how their books are sold. The arrangement is something that they call the agency model. So, you know, if you um, if you sell your house and you have a real estate agent, the real estate agent doesn't own your house and then sell it as a, for more money or less money, whatever they can get. They just act on your behalf, and you tell them how much you want, what price you want. That's an agency model, and that's the model they took with eBooks. Of course, eBooks aren't physical; they're just zeros and ones. They're just computer code. But the fiction is, well, Amazon's their agent. They don't really own the books. Not that there are books. They don't own the files, I guess you could say. They're just the agent. And each publisher tells Amazon what to sell the book at. And then Amazon takes a cut. The cut is, I think, 30% of the sale price. Is that high? It sounds high. I think it's 30%. Uh, This has been the standard, thanks, frankly, to Steve Jobs. But we'll get to that in a minute because that's behind all of this. So each agreed to this agency model. And when they did individually, they issued press releases or letters to their authors, you know, explaining what they that they were doing this, but each individually. And there's another wrinkle to this, which is often referred to as a price parity clause, not parody <laughs> as amusing, but equal. So um, in these agreements, I required each publisher to tell Amazon if their books were available through a different retailer at a lower price. So to inform them, if, let's say, they were allowing Barnes & Noble to sell the book at a lower retail price. And then Amazon could react and could say, we want the same price, which is, you know, what they would do and what they did. And this included not just the same price, but promotional deals, whatever sorts of things they worked out that gave other retailers a little better deal, they had to tell Amazon about. And Amazon would tell them, well, we want that deal. Now, if the publishers balked, then Amazon could retaliate or threaten to retaliate. And they had lots of ways to do that, some of which have become public. I mean, they they sell a lot of physical books, so they can retaliate against the physical book division. They threatened Hachette with that at one point, you know, to force these publishers who, in the end, I mean, they need Amazon to distribute their books. So the allegation is that the price parity clause or the price informational parity clause that combined with the agreement, you know, the agency model was an agreement that effectively fixed the price and prevented discounting. And the plaintiffs back this up with 
you know, that they all had this, these press releases sort of telling everyone in the world, including their competitors, what they did. And the week after these agency agreements were signed, everyone increased their ebook prices, some by quite a bit. Penguin, for example, by 30%. So that, they argue, the plaintiffs argue, shows it was an agreement to fix prices. Now for the background in a prior case involving Steve Jobs. Now, I said there's background in this. And the background is what makes it more interesting is that it's not the first time we've seen a problem with price fixing of ebooks. And the first time actually involved litigation with the Justice Department and the states and the European Union, actually. And it involved Apple. And this dated back to 2007, believe it or not, when the Kindle came out. And Amazon releases the Kindle with a low ebook price of $9.99. At that time, publishers distributed ebooks like they distributed hardcover books wholesale. So they would sell them to the retailer, and then the retailer could sell whatever price they wanted. So they were selling books, ebooks, to Amazon for roughly $9 or something, close to the $9.99, and Amazon wasn't taking very much of a profit. They were giving the consumer a great deal, in part to get the Kindle to be adopted. And the publishers were just, they hated this. (laughs) So (laughs) they actually started meeting together, and that's a key difference so far between the case we're talking about, the current class action, and the old case. The publishers met quite a bit, including a well-known meeting at a very fancy restaurant where they had a private room to themselves, a restaurant called Picholine on the Upper East Side. And, you know, they met and they decided to approach Steve Jobs, who was coming out with his own, you know, the iBooks, the iBook store on the iPad. So they agreed and Jobs didn't want to sell at 9.99. He wanted to get a lot more money, so they agreed with him on this agency model. That's they came up with it and said, "Okay, we'll give you the 30% cut. You can have a higher price, and we'll work out a deal. We can go into the mechanics if you want of how we're basically going to force Amazon and all of us to move from the wholesale model to the agency model where we can dictate the price and we're going to push it up past." the 999 point. So they constructed this agreement, which eventually resulted in their being sued. All the publishers settled that case with consent agreements, um, except for Apple, which litigated to the Court of Appeals and lost. So this case that we're talking about comes about once the remedies that were imposed in the earlier case expired. So Under the earlier case, the publishers were not permitted to stop retail discounting. Once that expired, they entered into new agreements with Amazon that effectively, they say, ended the discounting. So this is sort of round two, and this is the case that actually the district court just threw out. Yeah, so it sounds like what they're doing is an agreement and, and it's driving prices up. Right. So why did the court throw it out? You ask the perfect question. This is the kicker, and this is one of the really hard legal issues for antitrust law. 
So in the first case, remember I mentioned something about meeting at a private restaurant. Kishaline. And uh, there was a lot of communication. There were, there were a lot of emails, phone calls back and forth among publishers. None of that apparently exists in this case. So in the first case, when competitors get together on the same level of production distribution, their agreement is called a horizontal agreement. And a horizontal agreement on prices is considered the absolute worst thing in antitrust. Illegal per se, in and of itself, no defense. People often go to jail for it. So if it's horizontal, it's a big problem. But there's no clear proof in this case that they agreed. And the plaintiffs tried to argue, you can infer they agreed by some of their behavior. There must be an agreement. He announced it on the same day. Three of the five CEOs were around for the prior case. They know how this goes. <laughs> you know, now they're better counsel and they're listening to their lawyers. Apparently they did not the last time. And they're much more cautious. But there aren't that many players, and they know what's happening. And they all come up with the same deal. So, the argument goes, a jury could infer that they agreed. But the court said, no, you haven't pleaded enough. We won't allow a jury. It's, what we have is consistent with individual action as it is with conspiracy. And there's a Supreme Court decision that says, that's not good enough for, you know, an antitrust conspiracy. And so that's why the basically why the district court rejected the complaint. Now, we're at a very early stage. This is just really the initial stage of this litigation. They filed their complaint. That's all that's been done. They haven't, you know, had a chance to, you know, go through the emails, to do discovery, um, all sorts of things. So it's very early stage. But this is a problem. Competitors often announce things and others say, hey, okay, we'll mm -hmm. do that too. Think airlines. So, We're raising our prices and the other airlines do it. So do you think the next step is to refile the complaint? The court gave them permission. Sometimes courts don't give permission to replead the case, but this district court judge did. But Unless they have some new allegations of some kind of behavior, it's hard to know. It seems to me that it's more on a legal point at this point, unless they come up with other factual allegations. You know, unless they do, they don't have the opportunity to look further and do discovery of documents, particularly emails, things like that, that ended up sinking the the parties in the first case. So I'm not certain how they're going to do this. They may just decide to appeal directly to the Court of Appeals, but it's going to be difficult because um, courts have become more and more cautious about allowing plaintiffs to go forward and discovery is expensive and, you know, um, the Supreme Court's taken a somewhat negative view of just allowing plaintiffs to, as they view it, I think, go on some sort of fishing expedition through gigabytes of data. So I guess we'll see. I'm, I'm sure that they will try to move the case ahead, but it does, I think, rest on this key point about whether they have enough evidence from which a jury or the judge um, could infer that the parties all agreed. So we'll be watching this to see whether the plaintiffs refile 
their complaint or perhaps take an appeal. Thanks so much, as always, Harry. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Former President Donald Trump is asking the Supreme Court to intervene in the seemingly never-ending legal fight over government papers seized at his Mar-a-Lago home. He now wants the justices to appoint a court-ordered special master to review 100 documents with classified markings. I'm joined by Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Former President Trump is back at the Supreme Court asking the court to intervene in the fight over government documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. What exactly is he asking them? Well, in some ways, June, it's a very narrow request. All he's asking is that the, the court-appointed special master who's going through all these documents that were retrieved from Mar-a-Lago, that that special master be allowed to review these 100 or so documents that have classified markings on them. Right now, the judge is not, not allowed to, to review those documents. Are Trump's lawyers making a jurisdictional argument about whether the 11th Circuit had jurisdiction? Yeah, that's exactly it. Essentially, they say that the 11th Circuit, the appointment of a special master is the kind of thing, and the special master's duties is the kind of thing that can't be immediately appealed. And so they say that the 11th Circuit never should have even entertained the request to restrict what sorts of things the special master could do. In the lower court, Trump's lawyers 
make these arguments about Trump's role or a president's role in classifying documents and broad arguments. We've heard Trump even say that, you know, he can just say it. He can even think it and declassify arguments. Are they still making that argument here? They're not. And in fact, they completely stay away from that subject. That's what they did. In the, the lawyers did in the lower courts, too. They stay away from declaring that the president actually did something, actually declassified these documents, even as they argue that uh, he would have had sweeping authority to, to do that. So just to set the stage, this is an appeal from an 11th Circuit panel that had two Trump appointees on it. It is. And it was an opinion that came out uh, very quickly and was very definitive about essentially letting this investigation go forward. Uh, one other thing the 11th Circuit did uh, was to say that the Justice Department and national security personnel could go ahead and start looking at these 100 documents, start using them. And that is not something that Trump is asking the Supreme Court to, to intervene on. It's only asking the, the court to do that rather narrow thing of letting the special master look at them to see if there's some sort of privilege claim with these classified documents. Not clear what that what that might be. <laughs> exactly. But, but there's some sort of privilege claim there. This is an emergency appeal, but where's the emergency? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the former president waited more than two weeks to go up to the Supreme Court with this. And Justice Thomas, who's the justice who handles emergency matters out of the 11th Circuit, also didn't suggest there was any a massive rush. He gave the, the government a week to respond to it. So I wouldn't expect anything coming out of the Supreme Court for at least a week. Yeah. So does that signal that Justice Thomas doesn't think this is much of an emergency either, that he's giving the Justice Department so long to respond in an emergency matter? Yeah, I think that much is, I wouldn't want to go any further than that and, and suggest it says anything about Justice Thomas's views on the matter. But in terms of the timing of it, and that makes sense, there's not, you know, sometimes you see an emergency request and, and, a, and a party says, you know, we need something by, you know, X date or something, some particular bad thing's going to happen. There was nothing like that in, in the Trump filing. And in fact, it was rather unclear as to exactly what the particular urgency was for the, for the former president. The 11th Circuit yesterday approved an expedited appeal of the appointment of the special master to review the documents. Will that play in at all here that now that's on an expedited track? That is certainly possible. You know, the Supreme Court, when it gets the government's response, the government may probably will mention that and, and sort of suggest, hey, there's, there's even less reason for the Supreme Court to get involved here because the 11th Circuit is moving quickly to get all this stuff r resolved. Hard to say exactly how all those things will intersect, and, and no doubt we'll have various other developments happening between now and the time the Supreme Court rules. Trump's record at the Supreme Court is not that great, despite his three appointees. Remind us of some of his past endeavors. Yeah, well, he's, of course, had those big fights about uh, subpoenas for his financial records that the Supreme Court ruled on and didn't give him uh, nearly everything he was was seeking. And then perhaps more relevant to the current controversy, there was the issue of whether uh, papers uh, were going to be turned over to the committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. 
and the Supreme Court rejected Trump's effort to try to block records from being turned over from the archives to the committee, and only Justice Clarence Thomas dissented there. How long do you think this is going to take, a matter of days, weeks? The court will wait until they get that response. Normally, the court then waits to give the applying party a chance to file a reply brief. That'll probably take a couple days. Then it could be any time after that. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. 